Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, March 28, 2022, and this year we're excited to take you on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebeck with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Yero, and whether you're eastbound and down, crying tears of a clown, or just out on the corner working for some cheeseburgers, we've got a very smoky episode for you today. Okay, we're talking about the Smoky Mad Tom, and our guests are Patrick Rakes and Peggy Shute. Patrick is co-director of Conservation Fisheries Incorporated, and Peggy is a volunteer there and also a retiree of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So welcome, you two. Welcome. Yeah, so th- I mean, it's a it's a pretty cute little fish. So I don't know if either of you want to take a stab at just kind of talking to us about what they look like so folks listening can can get an idea. Well, Smoky Mad Toms are two inches at max, and they're almost annuals, like annual flowers. Uh, most of them only live a year. Some live a little longer, otherwise they might be in deep doo-doo if they can't reproduce one year. But that's one of the reasons that they're imperiled and endangered is because it's easy to mess up their reproduction and it doesn't take much silt or sediment or other water quality problems to do that. They're some of the smallest of the mad tom catfishes. There, There is a smaller one that's... Uh, called the pygmy mad tom for you know obvious reasons but but smoky mad toms are pretty small and they are triggered to breed because of the day length and also the water temperature probably a combination of both factors and pat jump in if i'm wrong but i think that's what triggers them when the day length has done certain things and the water temperature gets to a certain temperature then that probably tells them it's time to breed But sometimes, even in the late spring when they spawn, we can have these crazy, crazy cold snaps in East Tennessee, uh, or we could have, you know, downpours that make the water just flow like crazy in streams that could just sweep things away, or the temperature is so low that it might interfere with the development of the eggs that were spawned. Do they spawn only once? I mean, is it a pretty much kind of one shot and that's it for these fish? Pretty much. I don't know if we've ever, if anybody's ever documented one spawning more than once. Wow. That's more likely that they just only spawn one time. The other, other mad tom catfishes, you know, can live two or three or four years maybe. But most, mostly we think that they probably only spawn once. Yeah. How many species of mad toms are there roughly? Um, it's either 19 or 29. I think it's 29. I was going to say 25 or 30. You know, I've heard them referred to as stone cats too, which makes sense when you think about where they live. But where where does Mad Tom come from? Are you, do you know? Well, I don't know for certain, but they have venomous spines, and if you get spined by one, it hurts, it makes you mad. <laughs> that that's sort of what I've heard is the fisher people used to say, if you got stung by one of those, you know, that's one of the Mad Toms. They'll, you know. It makes you mad, and they do sting like crazy. I tried it one time just to see. It's like a bee sting only, you know. Not as bad as a lionfish spining, but it's pretty bad. You mentioned that they're smaller than a typical mad tom. What other features make this stand out from other mad toms and also from your more typical catfishes, like your channel catfish and blue catfish, beyond just their size? They look just like another catfish. They're just small, but the smoky mad tom has... The underside is a little bit lighter than the upper side, and they've got some saddles that go, you know, 
vertical saddles that kind of go across their body. Pat, you can probably describe it better than I can. They're just little catfish. They're cute. Most catfishes are nocturnal. They're, they're not out in the daylight. They're out at night. And if you want to do anything to monitor or, or to work with mad tom catfishes, you've really got to work at night. Uh, the best way to monitor them is to go out and snorkel at night with dive lights, scuba dive lights. Uh, so we've done a lot of that over the years. I mean, that was my first introduction to that kind of work with Peggy when she was working on her thesis uh, on the elephant mad tom. We used to snorkel in, in Sitico Creek quite a bit at night. It was often cold. All we had was wetsuits back then. We have dry suits now. But <laughs> we'd have somebody on the bank tending a fire so we could get warmed up afterwards when we got out of the water. If you were lucky. <laughs> and, and, you know, we wanted to tag the fish or mark the fish so that if we had caught caught them again we would know and you had to stay warm enough so you could use your hands <laughs> when you get in hypothermia in your hands you can't operate the syringes and do the work i'm always curious how people get into a job like this like you mentioned you two are describing the life histories of these two mad toms how did you get interested in doing that and you guys were the first folks to do that is that true when i came here to go to school uh usually you know, I, either the person that comes to graduate school has an idea for something they want to do, a project they want to do, or it's the professor you work with has a contract for some work that somebody needs done. And I knew I wanted to work on freshwater fish. I had been in North Carolina, on the coast of North Carolina, and had done an undergraduate project at a lake near the University of North Carolina at Wilmington that had some unique fish in it. Mm-hmm. And we were studying those fish and decided, wow, this is pretty cool. And I want to go learn more about it from the best person to learn at the time. That was Dr. David Etnar at UT, University mm-hmm. of Tennessee in Knoxville. So I came up here and he, luckily for me, Dr. Etnar had a contract with Fish and Wildlife Service to do the life history of the yellowfin mad tom. And my partner, Jerry Dinkins, he was out doing another contract for Fish and Wildlife Service looking for another fish. And he discovered in Sitico Creek both of these mad tom catfishes. And so Jerry just happened to stumble upon the smoky mad tom, which everybody thought was extinct when he found it. So it's just a matter kind of of being in the right place at the right time, but having an interest in wanting to learn more about these freshwater fishes that the southeastern U.S. is so diverse in and nobody knew anything about it. My husband and I in North Carolina found out so many things about fishes down there just because we went and looked. Yeah. So thanks to Fish and Wildlife Service and Dr. Etnar. It was great. It was fun. So being in Alaska, I don't have a a super good sense of the geography down there. Can you kind of just Tell me a little bit about what it's what it looks like there, where we're talking about exactly, where these fish are. A lot of the streams like Sitico Creek come out of the Blue Ridge, the main Appalachian Mountain range, and flow into and down through the Ridge and Valley. And streams that are, are very oligotrophic when they first come out of the Blue Ridge, they have a lot more life in them because they have a lot more insect life in them. And that's really important for mad toms because like a lot of small non-game fish, their primary food is aquatic insects. That's what they prey upon. Of course, mad toms use their whiskers to smell and taste around the bottom and find them and eat them. But 
that's one of the reasons that these fish were uh, restricted. They were lost from all pretty much all private lands, but restricted to public lands because public lands are not developed. And any place, anywhere you have development and you disturb the soil, you get silt and sediment washing into the streams, which kills all the insect life. On top of that, it would kill things like the nests, the egg nests that these mad toms have, which are on the bottom under rocks, and they would be smothered by the silt and sediment. So it's only on public lands, like the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and the Cherokee National Forest, that these fish could survive and continue to exist, and we could work on them. Catfish, uh, and these mad toms are the same, do not have scales. They have skin. So everything they do, as Pat said, they're nocturnal, so they can't really see a lot at night or crepuscular, you know, dawn and and dusk. So they don't have a lot of light to see. So they use their whiskers and their barbels to, to feel, but they also use their skin to taste the chemicals in the water. And that means even finding their mates or their potential sparring partners, you know, other males that might be looking for a good nest. So if there is a lot of runoff from the side of the stream, whatever is going on out there, if it's got chemicals in it, pesticides, herbicides, whatever, you know, oils, anything that runs off the land, we think that it can interfere with this ability to find the right mate, to find food, to find whether there's somebody out there that's bigger than them that's going to beat up on them when they try to get that nest rock and, you know, entice the females to come spawn there. So we're lucky that we were able to, Jerry Dinkins found them in Sitico Creek so we could try to make them have their eggs in more than one nest. So I want to ask you about that a little bit, actually. You mentioned that people thought that they were extinct before he came across them in Sitico Creek. Were they known in Sitico Creek and then they just went underground and no one's seen them for a while? Or were they known in another stream, but then for some reason they were extirpated from that and they were, then a new population was found? What, what's the deal with that? Okay, here's the story. And I'll let Pat jump in if I get something wrong. But in the 50s, early 1950s. 1958. 1958, late 1950s then, when they were closing uh, Chilhowee Dam that's on the Little Tennessee River. Little Tennessee River is the main stem, think of it, um, the, the main tributary. And then Abrams Creek, uh, which is in, runs out of the Great Smoky Mountains National Park almost all the way to its mouth, is on one side of the Little Tennessee River. And Sitico Creek, which is in the Cherokee National Forest, runs out of the other side of into the Little Tennessee River on the other side of it. And between those two, as the crow flies, there's not much difference between the mouths of those two creeks that run into the Little Tennessee River. But between them, Chilhowee Dam was being closed about that time in the, in the 50s. In the infinite wisdom of all the resource management agencies, including Fish and Wildlife Service and Park Service and you know state fishing game people back then, they thought they were going to do a great thing by poisoning out all of what they called the rough fish in Abrams Creek. There is a fairly significant waterfall. It's not passable by most small fish or rainbow trout or whatever they were stocking at the time. So what they did was they poisoned the stream from Abrams Falls all the way down to the mouth. They put block nets up to catch the fish that were in there. And their thought was they were going to get rid of all these rough fish and then stock trout so that people could go and fish and there wouldn't be anything to compete with the trout for 
food or whatever, and they'd have plenty of trout for people to catch fishing. So they put the block nets up and people that were working this task, lots of people probably, just took the fish out of the nets that were caught as the stream flowed by, the dead fish that floated up, put them in jars, preserved them, sent them up to the University of Michigan Fish Collection in in the 70s, somebody that was studying mad tom catfishes all over the U.S., the Southeast, went through these jars and found what he surmised to be a new species. That was Ralph well, Taylor in 1969. He described that species with from some specimens in, that, in those jars from Abrams Creek as the Smoky Mad Tom because it was found in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. He, you know, wrote a scientific description, gave it its name and said, well, we've been back to Abrams Creek. We've surveyed. We can't find any. We don't know of anywhere else it has ever been. So it's probably extinct until Jerry Dinkins found it in Sitico Creek, which does make sense. If you remember what I said about the mouse of those two creeks running into the Little Tennessee River. Following its rediscovery, it was then listed as an endangered species in Sitico Creek, which is the only place they knew it to be, was given critical habitat designation for the length of stream that we knew it to be, be found in. So cool. That's really what led to the start of CFI. That's what I was going to ask. <laughs> <laughs> when Dr. Etnair and Bob Hatcher, who was the head of TWRA, the state agency at the time, and Dick Biggins, who was with the Fish and Wildlife Service for this region in Asheville, North Carolina, they're all retired now. They got together and had the idea, well, these two streams are blocked from each other now by Chilhowee Lake, but Abrams Creek was a one-time poisoning. It's still in great shape protected by the National Park. It's fully forested and it has no silt and sediment inputs that are a, a problem. So why not put them back? Well, the problem is normally when you put fish back, if you're not working with game fish that are very prolific and produce lots and lots of young that you can propagate and produce, smoky mad toms are very low fecundity. The adult females only produce 50 to 70 or 80 eggs per year. That's it. And they aren't very dense where they are abundant, where they're doing well, like Sitico Creek. They're not dense. So you can't go in there and catch them and translocate them, just move the adults. That would never work without harming the Sitico Creek population. But because of what Jerry did and, and Peggy did, learning about their life history, we knew where and how they spawn under flat rocks on the bottom of the stream. And we knew how to snorkel and look for those rocks and we figured out and, and very quickly figured it's very easy to lift those rocks and capture the eggs in a plastic bag without harming them and then transport them back to a, a hatchery situation, an aquarium, and propagate them. And we've done it ever since. And that was a lifelong learning experience. We were not very successful the first few years. The first fish that we stocked in Abrams that we had reared were actually some yellow fins. I don't think we produced any Smokies that first year or two. And then we got better at rearing the eggs and larvae to adulthood and eventually started stocking both species into Abrams. What were some of the key learning experience along the way with this species in terms of getting it to adult size or to stockable size? Well, it's very, very hard to incubate the eggs in captivity and have them survive invariably they get fungal or bacterial infections and die. And 
their batches of eggs that are all lumped together like amphibian eggs. So if one egg gets infected, then the whole mass can get infected and die. So that's a problem. The eggs are about the size of a BB and they're and they're yeah. clumped together in a, a mass, you know, not so the mass is you could hold it in your hand. They're attached yeah, to each other. Fifty little eggs. It's like little frog eggs. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of. We had to develop techniques and, and use antifungal and antibacterial baths to protect the eggs from fungus and bacterial infection. And we eventually got to where we could rear them pretty well. We now know that you can separate the eggs with some chemicals, but we haven't actually attempted to do that yet. We've just tried to uh, propagate the eggs in their clump and keep them from getting infected. And we've gotten better and better at that. We can now have 100% survivorship of a lot of our egg nests that we bring in. The reason that this is more difficult for some a person to do this, in the wild, the mad tom catfish probably p- eats, you know, if an egg starts p- to look like it's fungus or something, he probably eats it to keep it away from the others, or he rubs his skin mm. over it, which some people hypothesize has mucus in it that with, with chemicals that probably have fungicide or bactericide or something in them that oh, would protect the eggs. So mama and daddy catfish or just daddy catfish <laughs> is doing this. And in the hatchery, it's mama and daddy people trying to, you know, mm-hmm. mimic what the daddy catfish does when he takes care of the nest in the wild. Interesting. And that's a really important part of their life history that most people don't realize fish have. Parental care. The male excavates a cavity under a slab rock in the stream and he puts out pheromones into the water the female smells and then she comes to find the male under the rock and lays the eggs and then he protects the eggs from predators like crayfish and other fish for two weeks until they hatch and then he protects the hatchlings the yolk sac larvae for another two weeks until they develop far enough to where they can feed on their own so he spends a month of his life under that rock, being daddy, protecting the eggs and the young. Nobody really realizes catfish have that much parental care. What should people know about these slab rocks? I mean, they just see a rock and a sleeve, but in reality, there's maybe a, a daddy catfish under there who's been caring for his young for a month. I mean, should people avoid moving these rocks around? I'm guessing no rock dams and things like that. That's really, really important. We had a hard time convincing the Forest Service and the park to put up signage and kiosks telling people not to disturb flat rocks during spawning season, which is pretty much late May to early July. They still do it. They build cairns, they build dams, they do everything. And of course, anytime they lift a rock that's got a nest under it, it's gone. It's dead. I had a a friend that described it one time. It's kind of like picking up all the furniture in your house and pile it in a corner because you want to have a clean, open space or like somebody coming down from out of space and moving all the buildings around because they don't like the way they look. You know, that's what we do when we move the rocks in a stream. And not only does it potentially move the the rock that underneath is a clutch of eggs that goes flying down from the current now and eaten by all the other predator fish in the stream downstream, but it also, when they build a dam across the stream, it changes the flow dynamics. The smoky mad toms live in the shallow areas between pools, you know, where water is, I don't know, six, eight inches deep, maybe a little bit deeper at times. But sometimes you couldn't even lay in the stream and have your snorkel be, your mask and snorkel be uh, deep enough to actually see very well. It's that shallow. 
So if somebody picked up all the rocks in that shallow, more rapidly flowing water, it changes that dynamic, you know, how deep it is, how fast the water is able to flow because the dam stops the flow a little bit. Plus, it also dislodges all that food underneath those rocks, too. Fish are hard to see, especially small fish like this, nocturnal fish. And it's just something I guess we're trying to do on the show is bring awareness about fish like this. So people know, I mean, if you actually get in a stream and spend a lot of time there, like you guys have over the years, I mean, you're going to learn a lot about some really cool fish. But yeah, I mean, it's just something you don't really think about. But when you get to know the fish in the creek and fish are everywhere, I mean, they're in your backyard. That's right. And people don't mean to do those things, you know, those harmful things. They just don't know. So thank you for helping to get the word out. People want to be good stewards. Not all mad toms are endangered and threatened. I know that there's some people out there who use mad toms for bait for walleye and smallmouth fishing. Now, why walleye and smallmouth want to eat these little venomous critters, I don't know, but they seem (laughs) to enjoy it. So since we probably aren't going to get another chance to do another mad time anytime soon, if someone finds themselves handling one of the species that they are allowed to handle, what is the best way to interact with this fish so that you don't hurt themselves and so that they don't hurt the fish? Unless, of course, you know, they are trying to use it for bait. Well, with the eggs, we try not to lift them out of the water at all because they're so small that they're harmed by changes in temperature and desiccation. But uh, with the adults, Keeping them in the water is good, too. Uh, It keeps their temperature stable. If you get them out of the water on a really hot day and it's a really small mad tom, you may kill it just from the temperature change. So that's important. If you're using them for bait, I guess it doesn't really matter. You're going to stick a hook in them and (laughs) use them for bait. The spines that hurt you, they're the ones that stick at their pectoral spines that stick out of their head, the ones that stick out sideways, and then the dorsal on the top of the body. Those are the things that hurt you. <laughs> Don't go there. Right. Don't boop that. <laughs> I was down in South Georgia once, and I was I was trying to catch both in, failing. I saw what I thought was like a bullfrog tadpole that was washed up sort of on the shore. I went to pick it up, and then I started to freak out when I realized it was a mad time because it had that adnate adipose fin, which that's something that differs mm-hmm. between the mad times and the other catfishes is they got an adipose fin that fuses right. with the tail. Mm-hmm. And so I was, cause I don't like being stung by things. <laughs> I don't think anyone does, but I especially <laughs> don't. I'm a little sissy boy over here in that respect. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was very scared. I just made sure that I like kept my palm open, eventually got it back in the water and it swam off. Uh, but you know, I've heard stories. My professor talking about one time he was like, you know, he was being careful trying to pay attention, but then he had just had a lapse of judgment and it closed his hand a little. It stuck the spine right up his thumbnail Ooh. and got him underneath. And Ooh. so I don't know. <laughs> I, I guess just leave your hand open if you're handling him out of the water. Like, yeah. don't squeeze. Is that good advice? Don't squeeze it. Yeah. <laughs> This fish you mentioned, it has really kind of low fecundity rate, pretty low densities, it sounds like. And you've been working on these fish for a lot of years. I mean, has this just been kind of a, les- a lesson in patience in terms of being able to see results from, say, the reintroduction work and the transplant work and stuff like that? It took about 10 years before we started actually finding enough animals to to say that it was working. And it's like looking for a needle in a haystack. You know, there's, there are a lot of rocks to look under. 
That's how we would survey for them. We would lift the rocks during spawning. You know, if they were spawning, that's where we might find them. We knew how to find the spawning rocks. Chances that we're going to be in the right place at the right time to see that animal spawning is pretty slim. But we finally did start seeing them. And Pat, you can speak to what's happened after all these 35 years. Abrams Creek, we are not putting anything back in there anymore because they're on their own. They're doing their own thing and they're spreading out uh, throughout that whole reach where they've been released. And they've gone from Abrams to another stream that is also a little Tennessee River tributary. So it's within the historical range of Smoky Mad Tom. And that's working as well. So that's the message is patience. You can't expect overnight success, but success it is. Yeah, that's just something you cannot overemphasize with funders and and the public is how long it takes with an animal, a fish like this, that's such low fecundity that you can't stock large numbers. So we had to pick one or two or three sites and stock them every year for years. And then we were actually out night snorkeling looking for them one time. In fact, I think Bo was with me and uh, you guys were at the beach and we called you as soon as we saw a yellowfin mad tom night snorkeling. So we had to celebrate on the phone from the park (laughs) as soon as we saw that fish. That's pretty exciting. And soon after that, we started seeing more fish. We started seeing dispersal outside the areas where we were stocking them. Now... We monitor the population annually at set sites, every site, every year, and we stock a few. We translocate a few from Sitico to Abrams and from Abrams back to Sitico to maintain what would have been normal, natural genetic exchange before the dam was in the way. So we're mimicking natural conditions as best as possible for genetic exchange like used to happen naturally. And that's a project that's going to go on forever. I would argue that smoky mad toms are doing better. They're more abundant in the Teleco River than they are in either Abrams Creek or Sitico Creek. And while those are the only three places that this fish could ever probably be stocked or restored, so it will never be delisted from the endangered species list, it can be downlisted. It can go from endangered to threatened right now. So we've really been successful. Really glad to hear about all this success that you guys have been having. It sounded like this fish really kind of, from what I've heard about your organization, kicked off kind of a movement. What what other species are you guys working with? <laughs> well, 70 species have been spawned so far here at, the, at our facility. We're, we're t- typically, we have here in the hatchery 20 or a couple dozen species that we're working on. They're not always necessarily federally endangered or threatened. Sometimes they have state listing instead. And in sometimes, in some cases in the past, we've worked with common species that don't have any status. Just because they're related to something that we might want to work with in the future, so we want to use them as a surrogate to develop the techniques that nobody knows anything about, but we can learn with the common surrogate, and then we can apply those same techniques to a endangered or threatened species in the future. There are a few examples of fishes that are not listed yet that are on a trajectory toward probably likely listing or, you know, they're declining. And sometimes there have been pre-listing efforts to propagate and stock or, you know, bolster an existing population by propagating for conservation purposes and then hoping that the trajectory doesn't continue to 
decline and that maybe there won't be a need to put them on the endangered species list. Right now, there's a project for diamond darters. Is that correct, Pat, in in, uh, West Virginia? That's really rare. And rather than working on the diamond darter itself, they're using a surrogate species that is the most closely related species that they can think to use to get the techniques down before they actually try to work on the really rare diamond darter. That's cool. What what species are they using as a surrogate for diamond darters? The crystal darter. Oh, you are using the crystal darter. Cool. And there's right now swimming around in back dozens, if not hundreds of larvae. So we're succeeding with crystal darters. <laughs> oh, that's really cool. We actually, we had uh, the, the guy who described the diamond darter on. So that'll, that'll be a nice callback. I saw last year, Fish and Wildlife Service, they declared two species extinct. One was the San Marcos Gambusia. The other was the Scioto Mad Tom, which is another kind of micro endemic species. And so I, I wanted to ask kind of your thoughts when you see a species like that, similar to the Smoky Mad Tom, that kind of goes on the opposite trajectory. Instead of being able to be recovered, it is kind of lost forever. What are your opinions on that? I think it matters a lot. Yes. You described it once your airport, your airplane analogy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, first of all, there's just the aesthetic loss. I mean, we've lost something that's never going to be in existence again. And that's just horrible. But um, Aldo Leopold used to have a, uh, I think he called, he's just called a machine, but you can start taking small parts from a machine or an airplane, rivets, let's say from an airplane. And the first few rivets aren't going to cause any harm. It's still going to keep flying. But at some point you're going to remove a rivet that's a tipping point and that airplane's going to crash and everybody on board is going to die. And you can look at the same sort of thing with these little non-game fish that nobody cares about. They are literally canaries in the coal mines of our waters. And losing one or two here or there is no big deal. It's not going to hurt us. But at some point, we're going to reach a point where it does. And we should not risk that. Yeah. We all want the same thing. You know, all of us want the same thing, whether we are interested in Mad Tom catfish or the mussels or the crayfish or being able to, to catch fish to eat or our kids can swim in safety, you know, whatever it is. Maybe that Mad Tom that's behind you in your screen there, um, maybe that has some chemical properties that could be used to help some illness that we don't know about yet. And there are people that are working on that stuff. Are there any things that people can do who own, you know, property by streams or near streams to help the local native fishes in this area and elsewhere? A lot of things. There are actually funds for people that want to do the right things for conservation on lands, like to put up fences to keep cows or, you know, whatever kind of grazing animals they might have on their land to be able to restore the riparian buffer. If they plant vegetation instead of, you know, mowing or cutting the whatever trees, grass, whatever is right down to the stream so they can see the stream. There are funds that help people plant the right kind of vegetation and that acts like a filter Uh, You know, all the things that run off the land where they're doing row crops or whatever it is they're doing, development of some sort, that can be done in a way that it doesn't have to affect the stream in a way that would harm the animals living there. Landowners can definitely make a difference. We've actually got one with Fish and Wildlife Service called Partners for Fish and Wildlife, and it's 
for private landowners specifically. And it seems like with a fish like this, you mentioned the skin versus scales and just that really importance of water quality. It seems like, you know, letting fish move to where they need to go, especially these smaller fish where you're not going to see them necessarily in a creek, but there's like a road culvert maybe blocking their way. I think there's a lot to be done. There's a program called Shade Your Streams, which involves protecting trees, which shade the stream, which is important because it keeps the water temperature down, keeps it more normal than when it's exposed to sunlight, when trees are removed. And of course, as Peggy was saying, trees are just like any other vegetation. They're tying the soil together and preventing runoff of silt and sediment, which is harmful to almost everything in the stream. Do you have any advice for folks entering this field and just what it's been like and maybe just any tips? Go snorkeling. Go snorkeling. Until you've gotten your faith in the water and seen fish in their world on their terms, you don't know what they look like. You don't know how they behave. That's what you need to do. We found out all kinds of cool things that nobody else had ever known just because we looked. And and girls can do it too. You know, just because you see something that you don't think is important. That doesn't mean it's not. It's it, it could be very important, very, very important. So just take notes, yeah. take notes and look, put your face in the water. And I guess that goes for anybody. So instead of making a rock dam, go, go snorkeling. Absolutely. Okay. Go snorkeling. Well, very good. It's been really nice having you two on. We learned a lot. So thank you. Thank you guys for letting us talk over everybody. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right. We hope everybody gets out there and enjoys all the fish, especially the mad times, and get out there and snorkel too. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebick, and my co-host is Guy Eero. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar, produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore Lambert, production management by Gabriella Montaquin, post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.